Good morning. I'm Judith Sachs. I'm the Chief Academic Officer from uh, Studiosity. And I wish to acknowledge that I'm hosting this online conversation at the ANU from the lands of the Ngunnawal and the Ngambri people of the Canberra region. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the various lands on which you all work today and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people participating in this meeting. I pay my respects to elders past, present, and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and First Nations peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and the waters of the AL, of the ACT and elsewhere in Australia and overseas. Um, I'm having problems with technology today, so please uh, bear with me. Um, I'm having to do this on my phone, so it tells you something about uh, being how, how much we depend on being connected to the internet. Today is our second symposium on academic integrity. This year has seen a variety of forms of course and subject delivery, online, hybrid, and face-to-face. -face. This year could also be called the great fatigue for both students and teachers and professional staff and universities. However, the issue of academic integrity remains central to ensuring quality and high standards of student experience and the activities of university. Over 500 people have registered in today's symposium. And today our focus is on delivering academic integrity at scale which remains a central responsibility in any education setting. So I'm going to ask each member of the panel to introduce themselves, uh, and in particular, in a very uh, um, concise way, uh, what uh, expertise and experience that they bring to this. Then I'm going to take some questions from the audience, and hopefully uh, at the end, if I'm still online, uh, bring it all together. So if I could... Uh, ask the members of the panel to just introduce themselves um, and, and what they bring to this, um, this symposium today. So if I could start with you, David Sadler. Okay, um, thank you. Um, my name is David Sadler. I'm Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Education at UWA. I'm also chair of UA's DVCA group and within that chair of our Academic Integrity Working Group. Thank you. Um, if we could have our colleague from uh, Texa. Hi, everybody. I'm Helen Ganeel. I'm the Director of the Higher Education Integrity Unit at Texa. And finally, Mark Hoffman from the University of Newcastle. Morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Mark Hoffman. I'm the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic at the University of Newcastle. I also chair the Education Policy Forum for the Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering. So as you can tell, uh, we have a very expert panel. And um, if I could start off with some questions that have already emerged, and uh, I'll, I'll open this up to everybody and you can step in to ask who wants to answer it first. So Dale Lim from RMIT, who is here today asks, students who don't trust or value the education system will cheat. Is it possible to rebuild mutual trust and respect? Um, you, I'll Mark, jump why in don't you start? Yeah, sure. Um, I think the, the first and foremost is that we have to build trust in our education system. Um, I think that's fundamental, and I think that's why this whole area is, is so important. 
the there's two sides to cheating. There's the there's the group that you mentioned. If the system's not trusted, then they they'll cheat. Um, but there's also a very significant, um, I, I would I would say, punitive side to this um, that we have to deal with as institutions. Um, if we don't have integrity as institutions, then there are significant significant penalties for us, which we then put down to students. But I, I do like the premise of your question because it says that we need to build trust and um, in our system and we need to make our students feel valued and acknowledge that the vast majority of students um, are, are do do the right thing um, and we just need to make sure that every student feels confident um, that they'll be treated fairly. Yeah I'd like to sort of add a bit to what Mark said and agree with that but but I think we know from research that dissatisfaction with the environment um, is one of the contributing factors to the propensity to cheat. We also know um, from the quilt um, that learner engagement across the sector is one of the lower rated areas. There are multiple reasons why that should and can be improved. Um, and then if you like how we might engage our students, um, perhaps especially in the co-curricular space might actually build more confidence and more trust and actually shy us away from uh, things like academic integrity opportunity or, or lack of opportunity, presuming. Helen, do you want to add, add your, your piece from the, the regulator's point of view? Oh, look, I'd certainly agree that the engagement with students is crucial and, you know, really genuinely engaging students in a conversation about academic integrity, not just at the start of their studies, but all the way through and, and letting them co-create and co-understand not just what academic integrity breaches look like, but, but what academic um, integrity is and why it's important and letting them have a really, a really thorough understanding and input into the design of those things is likely to be a pretty successful way to um, engage them. Thank you. And, and, Dale goes on in his question. He says, Professors Braytag and Harper likewise said that cheating is a symptom, not the problem. And specifically, there are three, three reasons students cheat. English is an additional language, the perception that there are lots of opportunities to cheat, and dissatisfaction with the teaching and learning environment. With quilt learner engagement low for many years, is this a bigger issue to solve in universities? Is it the elephant in the room for contract cheating? Helen, would you like to uh, respond to that second part of the question? Look, it's, it's such a complicated space. So yes, there are things that we know make a student more inclined to cheat, but there's also a really broad spectrum of who cheats and why and how much. And so to kind of just assume that it's one thing and that there's therefore one linear um, fix, you know, would really be missing the complexity of the issue. So, you know, the vast majority of students are completing their degrees with integrity. You've got another chunk of students who are, you know, perhaps um, curious or it's an easy out or they're pressured at a particular point. And then you've got a much smaller group that are, that are more determined to cheat. So I think it's really important to kind of stand back and think holistically, how do we as a sector and how do institutions craft policies, procedures, engagement strategies that understand that breadth of motivation and, the, and that breadth of behaviour? So um, it's really challenging and it is definitely an issue that is multifaceted and there's no one single solution, unfortunately. I would agree with that. And I think also um, it's worth us thinking through, if you like, the uh, trends. So what are the subject clusters? What are the, um, uh, if you like, the cohort clusters? And also 
not to understand it as a monolithic issue. There are there are different levels of cheating. Um, and obviously, there's the opportunity to intervene on an educative basis if it's a relatively naive part, part of that cheating spectrum. Uh, so I think, it, um, whilst I agree the premise of the question, I think the answer is much more nuanced and much more complex. I'd just like to, to support that. And if uh, that there's a spectrum um, of cheating and a spectrum of reasons for this. And one that we one thing that we see at universities is a, a, a not insignificant group of students that have either been sucked in um, to, to cheating because they didn't see the, what was happening to them or have done something that once it's pointed out to them, no, you can't do that, um, and they never appear again on our acad academic integrity records. Um, so there is a significant educative component to it. Um, and the other part is that there are many a number of cohort of students who feel extremely pressured and therefore providing support for them also um, addresses that issue in part. So Justin Brown's made an interesting observation. He Googled the assignment title. He said that 90% of uh, contract cheating cases I deal with starts with I Googled the assignment title, indicating answer seeking rather than problem solving behaviours. So is, is in fact part of the issue one of behaviour as, as well as integrity? Um, and if it is about behaviour, what are the behaviours that we have the responsibility in universities to inculcate and instill in students? Yeah, can, can I jump in on that one? Because I think Please. that that is, I think, the, the real heart of the challenge. Um, we tend to focus on contract cheating, uh, i.e. students um, downloading uh, answers to um, assessment questions. There's another side to this, which is, um, file sharing, uploading, uploading questions. Um, and certainly at my institution, we've had a big campaign uh, with students, an educative campaign about the challenges of uploading. Um, and of course, what unites those is whether academics actually vary their questions from semester to semester or year to year. The more they don't, the more there is the opportunity to upload and to download. And I think that's, that, that is right at the heart of the question. It's not necessarily the student behaviour that's the issue here, it's the, um, the behaviour of, of the whole institution. And I think, um, David, that, that's why that creating that um, positive integrity culture in an institution where it's everybody's responsibility and it's recognised as such is so crucial because there are poor practices in academics as well as there are poor practices in students and there are, there are policy gaps and there are training gaps. Institutions need to recognise that staff like students come from a variety of backgrounds. They come from previous employment. So it's not just about make sure once you're here, you, you um, update your assignments. It's don't reuse assignments that you've been using five years somewhere else that are already out in the wild. So there's a whole range of things that, that really um, can be addressed, but it's just that it's such a broad issue that, you know, <laughs> Institutions and individuals run out of steam sometimes, but it's just one of those things that we have to keep trying to identify and close gaps. Both David and Helen have, have touched on the issue that it's the nature of assessment. I think there's, there's a challenge to telling students when that they shouldn't be Googling to, to find some guidance when in every other aspect of our lives, um, the first thing we do is to um, Google to answer some question we have and to then assume that there'll be one small part of what these students are doing in their entire lives where that 
is, is not allowed. Whereas if we address the nature of the assessment, um, then that to make that not a not a viable solution, then we've essentially addressed addressed the issue. So we're 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 referring to, in fact, perhaps the nub of the problem is is the nature of assessment, and is is that where the focus should be, or should be should it be some other focus? I'd say that there's two way. I mean, there's two approaches being taken. Taken one is essentially to continually try and win the arms race um, of technology on on cheating, and by the nature of arms races, uh, universe you, you will always be a, a somewhat behind. The other way of doing this is to get to the front of the front of the curve and look at means of assessment, whereby the tools that are a part of the arms race arms race uh, are no longer useful. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think no one no one approach is foolproof. So um, it has to be a complex ecosystem. Um, the educative, the assessment, and even some of the sanctions processes, if you like, maybe reduce the incidences or, or um, de-emphasize the opportunity. Um, the technological interventions and other interventions are about detection of something that's already happened. So I, I think what we, we have to understand that there are multiple levers, none of which are perfect in and of themselves. Yeah, and I think we do have to keep doing both. I mean, you see that at the institutional level. Yes, it's really important to educate students and equip them at the start of their journey. But it's also important to take action where a student has breached academic integrity policy. So it's a bit the same on a sector scale. I mean, yes, we can keep trying to address the demand for cheating services, but I think there is a role for trying to address the supply of them as well. And I think, you know, the, the assessment conversation is really crucial, but a few things that can sometimes get overlooked is, you know, it, it's a bit easy to say if it was authentic assessment, students wouldn't cheat. We, we've yet to find something that has never been cheated. I mean, students cheated well before there was technology. They Students impersonated each other in in exams. So there's nothing that's actually completely 100% cheat proof. And to imagine there is, again, it ignores the bigger question about the positive integrity culture and why students should be practicing with integrity and why that matters as they enter their professional career. So is this also a socializing aspect of, of students? Shouldn't happen just at universities, it should start in schools. And part of that socialization is in fact, honesty and integrity are a core part of civic life. So is that is that where we need to start, Helen? And, and if so, what ideas do you have? And then David, and um, you might like to um, make an input too. But what, what part do we have to actually, we're seeing a symptom in universities, but it's starting elsewhere. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think, you know, we should recognise that the divide between tertiary and secondary it is an artificial divide. It's how we parcel up our education system, but it's really about a continuum of learning for the individual. And so I think those sectors, you know, do need to be interconnected. And I think, you know, certainly from the government level, increasingly, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to reach out more and make sure that the initiatives that we have are understood and we're useful adopted. And similarly, finding out what is actually already happening in the primary and secondary sectors that we can we can build upon. Because as you say, they, they don't, they don't just come to us, they come to us with that entire 12 years um, already ingrained. But, and, you know, the competitive nature of, you know, people say, well, if university wasn't so competitive, people wouldn't cheat, but society's competitive. Students are being, you know, indoctrinated into cheating in a whole range of um, 
you know, settings from a very young age. Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, that's right. I think, you know, we, we have to understand that um, both legitimately and illegitimately, um, everybody seeks a, you know, a kind of graduate advantage. And so um, my sense is understanding the, the higher education sector sits in a complex ecosystem. So there's the, the students we receive from the high school um, and who have had 12 years of education, but there's also the ecosystem of higher education. So we've all got pathway colleges, we've got transnational. All of that needs to be reflected, I think, in this culture of integrity. And Mark, mm -hmm. I think earlier made the point that that's an institutional culture that needs to, to actually overlay all of the, the specific initiatives uh, that, that uh, we then do to challenge um, uh, bad practices around academic integrity. Yeah, I, I just support that. The, 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 we, take, we can't take people from other places and then suddenly put a different bar onto, onto academic integrity. It's an it's a education ecosystem and there are many pathways. And the, the premise of the, the initial question, I think, is, is quite right. We do still get a large proportion of our students out of the high school system. And that would, it would be good to have a consistency of messaging um, between what universities expect and what's expected in secondary education and the various pathways. And then we have our, our own internal processes for students which who come through out of systems, such international students, um, that it's less, it's less easy to control. So I'd, I'd like to now move on to another question. And Helen, I'd like, I'd like to really get a, get a sense from you because you're the text person. The government text legislation is kicked off blocking several websites. What's next? Um, we have questions about whether there is more more to do regarding cheating sites advertising. Are there indicators that it's working and will this probably... You're, you're breaking up a bit, Judith, but I think I've got the essence of the, of the question. Um, yeah, so look, my higher education integrity unit that I lead does have the responsibility within TEXA of um, enforcing and enacting the government's anti-cheating legislation, which targets the providers of cheating services, not the students. So, um, so far, we've blocked 42 of the um, most popular essay writing bespoke essay services. And actually, well, spoiler alert, three hours early, but at 2 p.m., the media release will go out saying we've just blocked another 110, which are the next um, biggest one. So that's 150 sites now. We do a lot of web traffic analytics so that we can see what's happening. Um, and, it, and it's helping us really target our approach. So although there's far more sites than that out there, the 150 sites that we've now blocked make up over 70% of all Australian traffic to those kinds of sites. So it is a, it is a targeted approach, but we absolutely recognise that this isn't a problem you can just legislate your way out of. It's not something that, that this will solve in and of itself, but we think that the alternative of allowing these businesses to just operate in plain sight is really unacceptable. And I think the government having this legislation and us following through and taking action makes it easier for institutions to message to students that these services are not just distasteful, they are illegal under Australian law and you should not use them. Um, Helen, what's, what's, there's a whole conversation going on about what's happening in high schools and that in fact, you know, high schools 
seem to be rife with, with some of this bad behaviour. Does TEXA have any um, oversight over what's happening in schooling? Look, we don't. Under our Act, our powers only extend to those providers that, that we regulate that offer higher education awards in and of Australia. But certainly we reach out to our colleagues in state, um, state government to let them know the kind of things that we're up to and, and the trends we're seeing. But we don't have any um, actual regulatory authority over what's happening in the secondary system. Um, yeah, and I just I did see another question come through about the um, the social media, and so that that is something that we're also very focused on. We have someone whose full time job it is to um, just to work with the social media companies, and we have had over seven hundred posts, profiles, and advertisements removed from those because we know that you know students. It's actually mostly students that report those ads to us. So a lot of students are actually just as annoyed as you know and frustrated as academics. So we have a lot of students reporting ads that they're targeted with. Um, and then we work with the companies to have those removed. Look, somebody has uh, just put in a, um, I work in an academic skills and help students refine their ideas. What's collusion and what is cheating? And, yeah, and anybody that, can, can have a go at that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting one. And that's, um, uh, UWA, I think Guy Curtis is in, the, in this thing and he, he will be able to comment as well. On the chat, but we did an amnesty um, for students who were uploading, so file sharing. Um, and in that process, we had to um, really educate the students and indeed um, um, shape some of our own policies better around what is um, co reasonable collaboration and what is actually um, uh, illegitimate and misconduct behaviour. Um, and obviously, when you've got uh, the capacity for students to, uh, through a teamwork assessment, to actually share documentation, uh, that becomes a, a more challenging uh, question. Um, I just wanted to comment on the blocking thing, though. I think, um, I mean, I absolutely agree with what Helen said, and I think it's absolutely important that we can continue to do it. There are, of course, of course, it's an exact example of what's not foolproof, though, because it's more than there have been um uh more companies it's also of course we can only block through our servers so once the students off campus uh they can access and i think the um the issue with the file sharing is another example because some of these companies operate across the gray boundary of the legitimate and the illegitimate and then what do you do with those so um i think you know the the, the question you asked judith uh, is a good one, um, and it, it probably is in uh, has to be sort of run through the lived experience about the difference between collusion and genuine collaboration. So, do we actually have to name and give guidelines about what what the threshold is for collaboration and appropriate support, and then what becomes a breach of integrity? And if so, what might that look like? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I'm very conscious of the group that we're speaking through. Um, we do provide services of support to students, um, essay rate, writing skills, etc. cetera. Um, that never should go into, and therefore the essay will look like this, if you say what I mean. And, and so um, I think analytically, intellectually, it's clear what's the difference. It's just about how you put that down on, on paper and in guidance. 
It is. I just want to support what David's saying that it is, it's, and the challenge is that it is a, it, it's, it's difficult to define an explicit boundary. And the, I mean, and the way to act, articulate that is the student shouldn't get advantage from from doing it. But then again, providing guidance on writing essays is is essentially that. Um, and the a, a lot of it is, I think, comes around to assessment design. And I think we need to have key assessments where identity verification is is unquestioned. Um, and accept also that there will be other types of assessment where it's sort of sharing of ideas, for want of a better word, um, does actually happen. Um, I just want to reiterate, David, the, the blocking of sites, um, it's never going to, we're never going to block 100% of sites, but it sends really important signals and it does make, um, it does shrink the size of the problem and, and not insignificantly. Mm. On, the, on the assessment, because I think, Oh, you, it's sort of almost the, the core of the problem because, yes, you need to give examples and clear guidance, but you can't be overly prescriptive because one of the very things you're trying to develop in these people is, is that ability to make judgments and to make judgments in really nuanced and, and tricky um, tricky situations. So, so it's a really hard one. I mean, that, that critical thinking is one of the key things that hopefully students are graduating with. So we, we shouldn't expect that we have to micromanage at every point right up into the end of a PhD and explain everything that that's something that the people are trying to develop while they're at university so yeah but Mark picking up on your point I really think there's a lot of there's a lot of value in the conversation about if we can no longer ensure the integrity of every single assessment item how do we ensure the integrity of the graduate outcomes how do we ensure that someone is actually um, you know fit to receive an award and what does that look like because you know, is it a is it an annual or a six monthly viva or something that's far more intensive but less frequent? But how do institutions, when they can no longer ensure every single piece of assessment has integrity, still maintain the integrity of their award? Listen, that's core to to the to to, to an approach that yeah. that I have to say that I've personally um, become more and more comfortable with. That ultimately we're giving an award. And so we need to create, I suppose, smaller number of significant pieces of assessment which don't assess each course, but essentially assess the, the outcomes of what we're trying to give on the give for the award. And the reason that we tend to step away from um, sort of, so we say, identity verified assessment is it's really very really resource intensive to provide beavers face-to-face face-to-face exams. But if we actually move a way to sort of make a more holistic look at what we're assessing, then that issue um, becomes less significant. And certainly, um, and it was in the chat as well, uh, we found that that VIVAs are actually a very effective way of addressing assessment when there's um, when there's issues in question and also to, to essentially provide a quality check. Now, VIVAs in their own right have challenges. Not every student is well set up to do a VIVA. Um, so training to do VIVAs is, is important, but by the same token, it's it's a very good skill. Um, once you are at it, once you graduate, being able to present what you know um, in a in space at a pressure situation is, is an important, important skill. So just need to be careful about how we actually provide explicit grading on a VIVA type assessment as distinct from whether the student understands the content or not. Yeah, and I think, you know, when when people move the conversation to, if we just went back to face-to-face -face exams, we'd never have problems again. There are very good pedagogical reasons why we moved away from just doing that. Yeah. And we shouldn't <laughs> let assessment security completely trump pedagogy. Yeah, yeah. and face-to-face and, and -face exams are not foolproof either. So 
Um, so we don't solve that problem either. David, the, the idea of the amnesty has come up in, in quite a bit of the chat. Can you just elaborate on that in terms of how you managed it? But what were the pitfalls and what were the risks and what have the benefits been? Um, okay, so the pitfall, the biggest pitfall is knowing what to do afterwards. Um, uh, so um, what we did, we recognised that we were getting a, um, a growing number of academics um, having problems in that they their work was being uploaded onto some of these sharing sites. And then it gets really challenging uh, in terms of the takedown policies. Um, uh, so we've put some effort into central support for takedown as well. So the request companies to take down. Um, but working with our student guild, um, uh, we went on, a, if you like, a bit of a, a campaign of education around file sharing. Um, and in that, obviously, tried to do our best in terms of looking at the legitimate versus illegitimate boundaries. Then announced a period of amnesty where um, students who had done it um, would not face penalty. Um, uh, and then after the period of amnesty, uh, obviously the full force of the student misconduct policy would apply. Um, uh, but um, the justification for that full force applying is we gave them the opportunity to uh, tell us they'd done it uh, and that we had, if you like, provided a much stronger education campaign. So it was an educationally driven policy, if you like, uh, around it. Um, the challenge has come, and we had lots and lots of students actually declare, and lots and lots of students ask whether this was legitimate or illegitimate, which was a very good conversation. Okay, But the problem has come subsequent to that, which is, uh, for students who have arrived subsequent to that amnesty period um, and who then engage in file uploading, file sharing, um, have we provided, if you like, the full educational um, uh, direction? Uh, and what do we do in that context? So, and do we run another amnesty? So that's the debate we're having at the moment. Do any of the other members of the panel want to comment on what, what might be happening in both their, their experience and practice? We found that when we start doing random vivas, that it's actually a surprisingly low proportion of students that were, were cheating. Um, that doesn't mean that it's not, not acceptable. And I think we, when, when we start having this discussion, um, we all realise that sort of academic integrity is paramount to the integrity of, of, of education. But we also need to nuance it that the vast majority of students are, in fact, doing the right thing and we can't be treating everyone as a criminal. Um, and so this becomes, uh, I think this is actually one of our one of our challenges. A positive, supportive environment is not one that sort of puts in place that you're assuming everyone's a criminal. Um, and so this this is a challenge to essentially walk quietly but have a very big stick. And and that means also that you need to have good detection methods and be providing good assessment. Okay. Look, let's let's move on to um, the impact. Uh, on staff. So there are some questions about the role and impact on staff of integrity initiatives. Are staff on the front line for cheating difference, uh, defences to preserve the brand equity of Australian higher education? Or are, as we are here today to discuss, 
are the policy level and holistic initiatives that can put institutions on the front foot. So is it at the is it at the at the behest of individuals or is it at the behest and the responsibility of institutions themselves? Mark, do you want to have a go? I'll start because it's both. Um, certainly you have to have the policy framework uh, to support whatever whatever you're doing um, at a university level. But the policies will ultimately be implemented by the teaching staff. Um, they're the ones who are going to do a lot of the a lot of the detection. And we need to be supporting them because we do recognize that detecting and addressing integrity issues um, is challenging. It's emotionally challenging for staff. It's time challenging. Um, so we need to, it's, it's, it's both. Um, it's both policy and it's also staff training and staff support. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think um, one thing that we're here um, uh, trying to do is to um, train and empower a network of school-based academic integrity uh, officers, if you like, that um, can work with unit coordinators, can work with staff. Um, and that has multiple benefits. I think it shares the, um, the stress and the burden, um, but it also allows um, a greater consistency of um, reporting. Um, so uh, I think it is a, a problem. It's been a problem forever. I mean, you know, so before contract cheating, just standard plagiarism was an issue for every academic to, to chase down. And, and um, so this is not a new problem, but, um, but how we provide the, uh, the supportive environment to our students and to our staff, I think is um, a key piece. Yeah, of, the, of the environment's key and removing the irritants for academics. So, you know, again, it's very multifaceted, but there's stuff that we know because academics tell us and say in the literature that institutions don't do well, that discourages them. So the work's not valued, they don't feel supported to follow it up, the policy's not clear, the reporting system is clunky or manual, they never get told what happens in response once it goes centrally. So they, these are irritants and they add up and they matter. So I think institutions have a role in trying to reduce those irritating factors for academics. Academics absolutely have a role and, you know, it's, it's a question of integrity for them as well. It's their personal integrity to say, okay, this is time consuming, but I really believe this student cheated. I have a responsibility to follow up on it. So it's all of those things and everyone, you know, TEXA, government, institutions, governing bodies, academic boards, you know, everyone has a role in this. Everyone has responsibilities and that does include students. I don't think we should not be afraid to say that students also have responsibilities. I mean, we just need to so, look at the fact that no student wants to be in a in a course where it's known that people cheat and no academic person, no lecturer wants the reputation out that people are cheating in their course and getting away with it. So there's a comment here that says academics are time poor, under pressure, etc. Meaning they may ignore breaches of academic integrity and research shows this is the case. So how do we how do we manage that sort of structural workload issue around the broader cultural um, political issues within the institution? Hmm. Mark, do you want to have a go? Listen, I'm actually going to refer back to, to Helen there um, because she essentially addressed it that we need to provide to get rid of the irritant factor because that's it's the irritant factor and that extra bit of work that will cause people when they're pressured to to, to gloss over it 
So it's it's as David said, we've also got sort of um, integrity advisors now based in based in every school, and that's been transformational because they can then become a go-to person to answer the question. And also, also they're allocated um, space to, to provide support. But, and we need to acknowledge this, that it's it's a part of the role of a lecturer. Um, and just as we support lecturers to do many other parts of their activity, we need to be supporting them to do this as well. David, do you want to make a comment? Um, no, well, I think in a way, it's, it is what I previously said. I think the Helen's absolutely spot on when she talked about the irritants, um, because I think um, irritation with, uh, you know, what happens to, to the academic or the casual member of staff if they dare to sort of report something, what happens to the, the information after that, um, uh, the kind of workload that's involved in chasing things down, I, I, you know, these are definite irritations and problems. So um, how we provide direction in terms of why we're doing this how we mitigate in terms of the numbers of cases by educational policy. And then I think how we provide um, school-based resources uh, such as academic integrity officers are part of that kind of response. It's not, it's not gonna go away. So um, that's the issue. It's just how we manage this better. Can we, can we move on to the, um, the general area of artificial intelligence? And um, is the, uh, the sector prepared for the, the, the continued growth in the, in the sophistication of what art, artificial intelligence can do ahead of technology or work with it? And Mark, you and I had a brief conversation about this the other day, so can I ask you first? Um, are institutions prepared for it? I, um, I don't know what every other institution, but it's certainly, well, the preparedness varies, but it's certainly on the radar of every institution. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I, I sort of come back to, to what I was saying before. The, there's no way that an institute, the institution or anybody can win that race. Um, they can always do better. And so we need to actually address it by core pieces of assessment. Which, which essentially cover it, cover it up, um, make artificial intelligence advantages not, not able to be, to be realised. So you're, you're an engineer. Is, so is it academic? The, uh, artificial intelligence is also being used to detect uh, um, breaches as well. We need to keep that in mind. Yeah. So I, just to, uh, I'm just getting uh, some help from my... So, sorry, David, why don't you... Um, yeah, yeah, sorry. I, mean, I, I think in answer to your question, Judith, no, I don't think we're prepared for it. And, and I think um, uh, we're on the upward slopes of, of trying to think about what how we might deal with it. And actually, the value of a network like today is perhaps to share uh, some good practice in this. But um, uh, And I don't feel um, that we're ready for it at the moment. I think, you know, um, but... Um, Guy Curtis again to um, uh, we were talking about this uh, uh, the other day and he made a very wise comment I think which is um, that this is almost exactly the same debate we had um, and I can say this because I'm old enough when uh, calculators were introduced um, uh, and 
in a way um, that forced a re-examination of um, of what we do in in both the um, academic and the assessment design uh, in the kind of more mathematical or statistical areas. And I think in some respects that, you know, I don't really know what all that means in terms of implications, but I do think we need to, to think about authentic assessment. Um, uh, and it might be that this is these, these kind of spot vibers or whatever it may be, but, but we do need to think about other ways of, of addressing this. Um, because it, it sure as day is coming and is here. Uh, so let's, let's understand that we don't have an immediate answer. This is exactly the point that um, uh, Mark made earlier about an arms race of technology. We, we're always behind. So. And I think, again, it, it comes back to why it's important that students understand what they're getting. What, what, what are they at university or, or a higher education institution for? I mean, it's almost existential. What is a degree for if you can just outsource everything or get AI to do it? What is it that you've actually learned or gained other than the piece of paper at the end? It's, it's almost an existential question. What is the value that we're offering to students by enrolling them in these, especially if, if we get to a point where we say, well, you can, you can use AI as much as you want. Uh, I mean, I, I question how we're going to add value to that. Like, what is it that we're going to add that that you then can't use AI for. I think they're really, they're the right questions, but they're really challenging questions to actually think about deeply and to work out what, what we're saying we're offering and students are developing. And, you know, engaging students in that conversation is crucial. They will have ideas about this. So we continue getting back to, there, there's, as, as I'm sort of reading all the, the, the chat, there are two issues that are important. One, one is uh, assessment and one is the, the work contract uh, of people that do the teaching and people that do the marking. And that sessional staff uh, are paid um, using particular um, approaches and methodologies. And so they are also time poor. So how can we, how can we manage these two sort of parallel forces of um, feeling that assessment is necessary because you've got to know, you've got to actually um, identify what students know and then the people that do the assessment that uh, do it quickly and hence miss some of the issues of integrity so what what advice would you give to um, the, the the people in your institution to try to manage these two parallel but complementary challenges can I just say as a headliner there one of the things that that gets a bit lost is, I mean, checking that somebody knows what you think they should know is only one of the values of assessment. There's actually a whole range of reasons why we give students assessment because it's a crucial way of giving them feedback for their own development and learning. So that's that's the other part of this, that, you know, just catching a student cheating and working out who's cheated, that's not the primary reason for doing assessment in the first place. Yeah, I, I think... I couldn't the, agree more. Yeah, I, I, there's... The other part of it, of course, is, is that not all assessment should be considered equal. And we, at the moment, we generally tend to weight assessment based on the, the volume of concepts that are being assessed. But we could just as easily weight the assessment on the, I suppose, the, the level of, our level of confidence in the integrity of, of that assessment. And I, I agree with Helen that the assessment is core to the learning process. The feedback is, is what's really important. 
the the integrity leads itself to the the value of the piece of paper that that you're you're alluding to. So if we then essentially just restructure how we resource assessment um, and provide the heavier levels of the higher levels of resource resourcing where we have to do the more resource intensive um, high levels of um, I suppose of integrity and verification of who does it and but don't then we continue with the other assessments but we reduce the weighting on them and make sure that we're providing providing the effort there is to provide the feedback to that assessment. So do we actually need a, a, a more um, a public debate within the universities about the purpose of assessment and why it's important because I think that for some students they just see it as part of the ritual of, of going to university. I've got tests to do because how they've been are socialised and educated in schools. Absolutely, we need that, absolutely. Um, and perhaps the best example I can think of is, you know, when we were all forced uh, to be um, away from campus during the worst of the pandemic, um, what did that mean for where the assessment debate um, hadn't really happened and where um, most units had to be assessed by some kind of proctored online examination. Um, uh, suddenly, we had a problem about how do we deal with um, challenges to academic integrity in that proctored environment. Um, uh, and um, that lack of um, understanding, if you like, the diversity of assessment, the assessment for particular purposes, um, as opposed to uh, a much more knee-jerk reaction to we used to have a face-to-face -face exam, therefore we must have an online exam, uh, I think led to um, some significant challenges, but it also got us through a crisis. So I understand the, the benefits of it, but, but, um, but absolutely to answer your point, we do need a very serious conversation in every institution and across institutions about assessment purposes and assessment strategy. Mark, do you wanna make a comment or Helen? I just I agree with everything yeah. David, David says there. And it, there's not a deep understanding of what assessment's about. Assessment is a part of learning. Feedback on what you do and then improvement is the way we, we learn many things outside of university and in life in general. Um, but it's often looked on as essentially um, a part of collecting the, the, piece, of, the piece of paper. Um, whether I think, I mean, David mentioned students. I actually think it's actually a very important piece to have a discussion to have with staff as well. Helen? No, just, just completely agree. And I think, you know, from the institutional point of view, that comes back to, well, how well are we supporting this process? If our academics don't have a really solid understanding about assessment theory and pedagogy, how are we bridging that gap? What are the kind of mechanisms that we're going to put in place to to promote the conversation and the questioning and support the actions that come out of it. Look, as, as you're all talking, um, I'm thinking of the role of academic governance and the academic board or academic senate has a significant role in any institution, in universities, to sustain academic quality and standards. What, what, what role do you think the academic board should have uh, in starting to bring forth these sorts of um, debates about the future and the form of assessment? In most institutions, I think it's it's the pivotal, the pivotal group. I mean, that is the place where all academic issues 
um, essentially come together. We often look at it as essentially a it's, it's set up very often as a as a governance mechanism, but it's and whereby it's essentially the gatekeeper at the top of the pyramid. But when we look at the composition of academic boards, it's it's very important for for strategy um, development because policies need to follow strategy. Um, and that is where we need to have the academic board um, leading the debates in these issues. So how can you, as particularly the two deputy vice chancellors who are members of academic boards in your institutions and have been members of academic boards in others, how can that start to be re really one of the priorities for the academic board? Because, you know, brand education is certainly becoming um, uh, questioned because of the, the, the poor behaviour of some of our students. And I deliberately say some, not all. The majority are doing the right thing. So I think um, you're right, um, uh, Judith, but um, I think firstly, there has to be, um, if you like, a serious conversation about why change is needed. Um, so, um, uh, because it, it's, you know, we are challenging in many respects um, entrenched cultural um, and custom um, in terms of things like assessment. So um, a, an important role um, for academic board and its subcommittees would be to gather um, the data. So what are the trends? Um, uh, where are the, the hotspots? Um, uh, what are the uh, educational um, interventions, et cetera? Um, and for that to be part of the package of, of information that leads to a conversation about um, uh, broader uh, strategic um, uh, change. I think um, overloading the agenda of an academic board meeting uh, is a problem. So there's an important function for specialist subcommittees. Um, and then if you like to have a much more um, uh, complex conversation at academic board itself. Um, I wouldn't say any, I mean, I'm speaking for my own institution, we haven't got that right yet, but um, it, it is, I think, a, um, it's a necessary offshoot and actually issues over the course of the last two and a half years have made it much more important so to do, I think. Yeah, I think just following up on that, David, you know, academic boards don't have to do everything themselves. And that's probably not even, you know, desirable because you want that conversation to be broad based and for lots of people across the institution to be engaged. But academic board has a really crucial, crucial role in making sure that it is being done. You know, and that does come back to the, the data the recording, the reporting, and really questioning those things. So academic board not over-relying on whatever a subcommittee has put up to them and saying, well, I'm sure the subcommittee did it right, you know, but really interrogating some of those and saying, well, why does this faculty have more and what happened in response? Did we review the policies? Did we review the training? Like what was actually done? Report to us what you did in response to it. Uh, my perception of the academic boards I'm familiar with, and it's speaking also to, to presidents of academic boards, is that what we're actually saying is well understood. What needs a lot more development is actually the implementation. I mean, most academic boards do set aside a piece in their agenda for strategic discussion, um, and the subcommittees do look at, look at those issues, but it's less explicit in the charters of academic boards and hence it I think it's fair to say it doesn't get the weighting 
um, that it needs. Look, there's a question here from um, Paula Sanderson from Falmouth in Exeter. And uh, Paul asked the questions, um, how do you manage quality in transnational education students? And, and I, I know Paula, and so this is clearly a, an issue that she's having to manage at the moment, but I think others would probably be managing it uh, who are dealing with um, lots of transnational students. So any, any su suggestions that you might uh, like to give to Paula in terms of um, to manage uh, transnational education students? Uh, I think a combination of ensuring they do the same assessment under the same conditions and then having QA um, tools in place. The, the bigger challenge around that is it's actually, it becomes quite resource intensive is, is where, the, where the difficulty comes in. And so you then need to look at the, assess, factor into your value proposition for being involved in transnational education. Couldn't, couldn't agree more, Mark. It's really crucial that people don't underestimate the resourcing that's involved in, in a really successful transnational education partnership and a really um, solid student experience for those students. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, architectural elements that, you know, need to be right. So policies that apply, you know, across locations and assessments and boards of examiners. So, so really as much as possible that you're bringing that that education location into your academic governance structures so that it's you know it has the same rigor and yeah. it's strictly comparable and just really not in underestimating how much energy is required to maintain that relationship with your partner yeah there's another question and, and it's about reporting um and it's come up uh several times and do you think that the reporting of breaches of academic integrity uh, within an institution, but also reporting it to TEXA, does have a deterrent or is it just becomes one of the many rituals of verification around quality and standards? So I, I, would, I would try a bit of an anecdotal answer to that um, mm -hmm. question. Um, we have a, a, a system um, uh, whereby, you know, the, there's a automated kind of system whereby um, the cases are uh, uploaded. And then, of course, we look at the trends. Um, I'm much more interested, and we've asked much more questions, many more questions, where there are very low numbers being reported. Um, uh, and um, and the, why am I doing that? Because I'm not sure, if you like, whether that's actually um, a, a real a, a sort of demonstration of what's actually happening. Um, uh, so I'm not penalising. It wouldn't be a, penal, a penalty at all for for you know significant numbers because at least we know that things are being chased down. I just wanted to, to essentially reiterate what back up what David said. It's lower levels of reporting, particularly of low of low levels of breach. Um, that is the is the, very often the, the significant red flag because the, the low levels of breach and addressing those is one of the most powerful ways of addressing the larger problem. And the, your, the, what tends to be required for formal reporting is very often the, the higher breaches, sort of the, the, whereas if, um, provided that sort of reporting for low levels of breaching comes into the system, it becomes a, a lot more constructive process. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think the reporting is absolutely crucial. I, I would love to see public reporting. I'd love to see all institutions reporting publicly because students thinking that nobody gets caught is part of the problem. Okay. Students need to understand that that there are penalties and sometimes very severe penalties for breaching those policies because academic integrity is a, is a absolutely crucial and core component and pillar of our education system. So I think the reporting is really important. And I think the educative response in the first instance, which, you know, to the best of my knowledge, all institutions have is completely appropriate and, and really, really crucial. Again, it's another form of feedback for students. It's a way for them to learn um, and, and it shouldn't go away. I just need to jump in. My, my concern with compulsory reporting is it then can drive processes inside institutions which can reduce the level of reporting um, due to reputational impact of being very successful in detecting and reporting. Yeah, um, I, think, look, I think those are the right, you're right, that those are the risks, but then it can drive institutional um, processes in a good way as well, because that's the same at a faculty level, right? Some faculties might be thinking, oh, we want to be the good faculty, but in fact, really low levels bring more scrutiny than less. Mm. So look, the last question I'd like to pose to all of you is imagine that we are reconvening in three years time. What sort of conversation do you think will you hope we are having in three years time about academic integrity, uh, both at the, at the individual systemic um, and organizational level? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sound a bit bitter here, um, Judith. Um, I was asked to chair the UA Academic Integrity Group in 2017 uh, after the um, My Master and the Four Corners um, uh, issues. Um, my sense is that, um, and you know, we know challenges to academic integrity have, have been there for the entire history of higher education. So um, I don't think we're in three years' time we're going to be talking about the end of it. I think what we're we're going to be talking about is what is the next challenge over the horizon. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll come and tell you what the problem is. And maybe maybe we've made some advances in some of the assessment discussion, but but I I I, I just think it's a something that's just constantly evolving, and we're constantly having to address. That's what I, I have to say. I tend to I tend to agree when we look back sort of five years, you can extrapolate out the next five years, we will be having this discussion, but we'll be discussing different aspects, um, different features, um, different tools um, around academic academic integrity. Um, I think we're moving quite well. Isn't the, we're addressing the current issues very well, but I think aside from the discussion around trying to change society's culture across the whole of society, um, I, I expect that there'll be there'll be different aspects, and I, I'm not completely confident we'll address the um, the society of societal issues um, within the next five years. Yeah, I, I don't think that the fact that we'll keep talking about this should be seen as failure. No, I think it's just reality that this is an issue that will continue to evolve, and and so will our response. And I think Australia's come a really long way in developing a, a much deeper understanding about why students cheat and what can be done and how we can support them. Um, and, and that's work that will continue. Look, we are now, we have one minute to go. And in summing up, can I just say thank you for bearing with me because doing this on my phone, uh, not being able to access the Wi-Fi at the ANU and having a battery that was about to collapse 
has been quite a stressful activity, but I think there are a number of points that have come up today that are really important. Um, they're about assessment and, you know, why do we assess, how do we assess, and having clarity around the purpose of assessment. And that idea of feedback being so important, I think, needs to be uh, really uh, socialised into students. Workload for both academics, uh, tutors and students needs to be um, thought about. Uh, reporting both as a, uh, as a way to measure the, the quality and standards, but also perhaps hopefully as a disincentive. And also uh, technology, you know, uh, artificial intelligence is both uh, a, a burden but also an enabler. So how can we make sure that, in fact, the enabling aspect of AI uh, is not something that compromises uh, issues of um, academic integrity. And finally, thank you to the, the, the three speakers who were um, really uh, engaged, candid, and thoughtful in your responses. And as somebody wrote, uh, an hour is not long enough for this really important topic, but I think we have traversed all those issues that I just summed up before, and it's just been a really terrific uh, hour that I've spent with you today, albeit very stressful. <laughs> so thank you all. and. Uh, Keep, keep on the lookout for our next um, webinar and, and symposium. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.